Welcome to a special episode of Under Our Feet. And it's a special one because it's going to break the chronological order that the season has had thus far, and it probably focuses on Minnesota a little more than Wisconsin. But I think it's worth it because there's a bit of breaking news that inspired it. Well, I guess it's still breaking news if you think of it in terms of geologic time. As I'm recording this, it was about two and a half weeks ago that the news I'll refer to later actually broke. This episode stands on its own, but in our third installment, the third episode, we talked about something called the Mid-Continent Rift and the copper that came from it. So go back and listen to that one if you want to learn more about some of the background of what we're going to talk about today. Before we get into today's show, it's time for a reminder to tell a friend or family member about the show if you think they might enjoy it. You can also leave a quick rating or review at uofpod.org, that's uofpod.org. You can find a link for my contact info to get in touch with any comments, questions, or even corrections. There's also a link to support the show on Patreon, where as little as a dollar a month can bring you into a community of patrons where you get access to more content and some cool rewards, like bumper stickers, t-shirts, shoutouts, and even the opportunity to come up with a topic for a mini-episode that I'll put together after the first season. That's all at uofpod.org. Thanks to Sam Smith, our latest supporter on Patreon. It turns out we're actually going to do something special with our Patreon support for the next two months. For every dollar that we receive, half of it will go as a donation to Honor the Earth. This is an organization run by Winona LaDuke. We're going to hear today from one of her friends, Frank Bebo, a tribal attorney that's worked with Winona and Honor the Earth for years and years. This is an organization that works to create awareness and support for native environmental issues and to develop needed financial and political resources for the survival of sustainable native communities. I encourage you to visit honorearth.org and go there to donate directly. Or if you support Under Our Feet on Patreon, you can know that half of your donation is going directly to Honor the Earth and the other half is going to support the creation of this podcast. The link for that is at uofpod.org. Okay, so here's the breaking news that's a few weeks old at this point. Back in October of 2021, the Biden administration announced a plan to restart a process to determine whether to impose a 20-year moratorium on mining in the Boundary Waters watershed in northeast Minnesota. What are the Boundary Waters, and why do people care so much about mining in them? What is the history behind this new proposed mining up there? What does the science tell us about the risks of operating mines in this remote stretch of the upper Midwest? And what are the politics and cultural considerations shaping this discussion? Those are a lot of good questions if I do say so myself, so I better get moving so we can get on to the answers. Welcome to Under Our Feet, the podcast where we go deep into earth and deep into time to understand the geologic forces and events that shape the world around us. I'm Rudy Molinick, and this is Season 1, The Geology of Wisconsin. And for today, we're going to include Minnesota and the broader Lake Superior region as well. One of the big ideas of this podcast is that we, humans, are part of a larger Earth system. 
This system has been developing and changing for four and a half billion years. We've only been around as humans for the tiniest fraction of that. Yet, we have the ability to change things here on a geologic scale in an instant. The decisions we make about how we use the Earth and how we relate to the Earth and how we treat the Earth, these decisions have consequences that could last for thousands, millions, or even billions of years in this Earth system. Today's story is one that, in a really timely and interesting way, illustrates how this works. It's also a story that shows different ways that people relate to the Earth and view our responsibility to care for it. It also draws out this point that science can't be a neutral thing like we like to think about it. Geology as a discipline is associated with and has profited from extraction and dispossession for over a hundred years. These are processes that have left communities and environments decimated. But that gets to the point of this whole podcast series, that in addition to helping find the resources that we need to build the world we live in, geology can help us figure out how to protect that world and be a source of wonder and connection. And one way to experience that wonder and connection is to learn deeply about a place you care about. The Boundary Waters, where this story is set, is one of those places where people tend to develop a caring attachment to the land. So what exactly are we talking about when I say the Boundary Waters? Well, in legal terms, it's a federally protected wilderness. And... Yeah, so the Boundary Waters is a really unique wilderness for the United States. The first thing that all visitors are astonished by is just how much water it has. It is a watery wilderness if there ever was one. I think there's something between 1,100 and 1,200 lakes, uh, multiple rivers. And you know, if you look at a map, a lot of times it seems like there's even more water than there is land. So in that respect, it's, uh, it's, it's one of a kind, and it is some of the cleanest fresh water in the, you know, in the United States. This is Pete Marshall, and I'm the communications director for Friends of the Boundary Waters Wilderness. And I really began to canoe in earnest when I was a teenager through a program called Lay Voyagers that uh, brought me on a month-long canoe trip into central Manitoba. And that's what really got me hooked into outdoor adventures, exploration, and in particularly canoeing. And actually, I ended up doing a lot more canoe trips in Canada before I ever set, set foot in the Boundary Waters. And usually it, that's the reverse. But once I discovered the Boundary Waters, quote unquote, um, you know, I was just delighted to find this perfect example of Precambrian shield of boreal wilderness uh, in the northern part of state I live in, and it really is a treasure, a little taste of this much larger ecosystem to the north that I had grown to love over the years. But Pete isn't the only person who's had this experience in the Boundary Waters, who's gone canoeing there and felt like they discovered something special. Largely because of the abundant amount of fresh water and that kind of natural beauty of the granite, the water, the forest. It is now the most popular wilderness area in the United States. I think about 150,000 people are visited each year. Uh, 
Um, so it's uh, it's definitely a magnet for for that region, and you know that kind of human connection with the wilderness is really essential, um, both in the number of lives that are changed and touched by the area each year, and uh, the fact that it really does have this pristine quality that. Um, people are able to enjoy that solitude and that ability to really feel like you're stepping into um, some place that has looked the same as it has for over 10,000 years. And, you know, it, it, has, um, it has been occupied by people um, for probably almost 13,000 years. There's archaeological remains um, that have been found in Knife Lake of um, flint tools uh, that have been dated to about 13,000 years. So almost, almost just a few centuries after the glaciers receded. And then uh, of course, indigenous people um, lived here for, for the millennia afterward. Um, you can still see pictographs in the area. Um, most recently it was homelands of the Dakota and the Anishinaabe. And now it is a federally protected wilderness area. And like I said, the most popular in the country. Um, and that kind of unique watery characteristic, that's really what draws people and what makes it such a special place. But as Pete alluded to, it's not just tourists and canoers from the Twin Cities that value this place. For the Chippewa, the Anishinaabe that lived here long before the first Europeans, this federally protected wilderness is a place of resources that support them and their culture. Any place that the federal government has land, aside from like to say a military base that's active or a nuclear power place or something that's got, you know, cyclone fences and barbed wire and things like that. Federal lands are our primary place to go and exercise our rights to hunt, fish and gather. And this, this is. My name is Frank Bebo. I'm a tribal attorney. I work primarily with Indian law on the Chippewa reservation, Leech Lake where I live, White Earth where I'm enrolled. Um, all the Minnesota Chippewa tribe reservations. I do a lot of different things. I'm the executive director of the 1855 Treaty Authority. A lot of times I'm an election judge um, with the Minnesota Chippewa tribe elections, things like that. You know, I've, I've just got a whole bunch of different things because there's not very many attorneys in our group, you know, in, in terms of the tribe. And so um, I'm working for White Earth on line three and treaty rights. I'm working with Honor the Earth on the same kind of stuff. And you know, I'm piecing it all together and working with everybody and for everybody all at the same time. Frank has worked on wild rice and indigenous treaty rights since the 1980s when he brought a suit against Anheuser-Busch, who were making patty-grown, quote-unquote, wild rice in California, then shipping it back to Minnesota and selling it as the real deal. And when we talked, he told me about the importance of wild rice to him and to his community, which starts at the very beginning of the Anishinaabe story of coming to Lake Superior. The ancestors of the Anishinaabe, or the Chippewa and Ojibwe, lived in the Northeast United States. But a prophecy told of a place where food grows on water over to the west, and they moved to the Lake Superior region and found monomen, or wild rice. Well... You know, I, I don't want to say it the wrong way because, you know, religion's a funny thing. But, you know, if wild rice is right up there at the top with your religion, you know, it's not too far down from the angels and Jesus Christ, son of God. You know, so 
So what do you do about those kinds of places? What do you do about the cemeteries where your ancestors are buried and they have these grave markers? Do you protect them or just let the pipeline come through? You know, do you, how does that work out? And so it's hard for people to make that spiritual transition, I think, to where we would see wild rice as important as other people, you know, or vice versa. But there's enough written about it. It's obvious that people know that we have a very strong spiritual and cultural connection to it. So we don't have any choice but to step up. So, you know, and that's the same for water. And, and so those two things compel us in a way. And I think it's called other people spiritually for our water protector camps at line three or for Standing Rock and things like that, KXL. It calls people to come and stand. It just doesn't call everybody. Not everybody hears the call. So when I, when I look at wild rice, I've known about it all my life. I know that my dad was a ricer. I know that he produced rice and processed rice and that my grandfather, you know, I've got his old canoe and that old canoe was his brother's canoe. So when you're trying to figure out how important wild rice is, you know, you, 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 you almost have to participate at every level. And so when I was younger and stronger, I'd go out and pick a lot of rice and maybe I'd get some finished to eat. Now that I'm an old guy, I buy rice right at the landing from many canoes, and I have a plant that I inherited from my cousin who passed away, and I go and process wild rice so that we have finished wild rice. I try to make that plant available for other people to bring their rice and process it, maybe get a cut of it or something, and let them learn how to process their rice, because that's been taken away from us. That whole educational step about how do you take this off the lake and turn it into food you can eat, and while we know the steps, we don't always know where we can engage in those steps. And, and that's what keeps your culture alive. So this sets the tableau. We have the Boundary Waters Wilderness, which over a hundred thousand people visit each year to canoe, camp, and experience a sense of adventure in the Northwoods backcountry. But it's more than that. The clean waters of northern Minnesota are a source of nutritional and spiritual nourishment for the Chippewa and Anishinaabe. But you'll remember something else from episode three of this podcast, that the area is also sitting on top of a vast reserve of copper and nickel. Now, I'd suggest going and listening to episode 3 about the Mid-Continent Rift, if you haven't already, but I'll do a quick recap here. Lake Superior sits atop an ancient basin, or depression in the Earth's crust, called the Mid-Continent Rift, that formed about 1.1 billion years ago. That's 1,100 million years ago. Here, the North American continent tried to break apart, and it almost succeeded, it's the same process that separated North and South America from Europe and Africa. It just didn't get far enough 1.1 billion years ago to create a true ocean, like the Atlantic. And down the middle of this ancient mid-continent rift, where Earth's crust thinned, magmas were able to rise to the surface and create volcanoes. And all this, it was centered on what's now Lake Superior. As those volcanoes erupted over tens of millions of years, they put out layer upon layer of lava, the weight of all those lava flows caused the Earth's crust there to sag down, forming a broad U-shape under what is now Lake Superior. Deep within the bottom of that U, hydrothermal fluids, which were hot and acidic water, pulsed and swirled, leaching out copper and other metals from that rock. 
Then those fluids flowed up along fractures and faults in between the layers of the lava flows. As they got closer to the Earth's surface, up the limbs of that U-shape, the fluids cooled or changed acidity, and they couldn't carry that metal anymore. So the copper and other elements that had been brought up from deep were deposited as minerals. In places like the Keweenaw Peninsula on Michigan's Upper Peninsula and Isle Royale in Northeast Lake Superior, that copper was deposited as native copper, which is pure elemental copper that just needs to be physically separated from its host rock before it could be shipped out to market. Those rich deposits were mined from the 1840s well into the 20th century. But that's not the only kind of copper that the Mid-Continent Rift deposited. In the presence of sulfur, copper doesn't hang out on its own, but it bonds to the sulfur and forms copper sulfide. And there are vast amounts of this still up north, underground and unmined. And in this copper sulfide, it sets up a tension between extraction, the long history of mining jobs in the Northwoods, well, between extraction and the abundant natural beauty and clean water that brings all those people up there today. And it turns out, this tension is nothing new. Here's Pete again from Friends of the Boundary Waters. Something a lot of people don't fully appreciate, I certainly didn't appreciate it until I started working here and started learning about the history, is that the Boundary Waters are probably the most continually controversial piece of land in the United States. Um, obviously, there's been national parks like the Grand Canyon, that, um, or more, more recently, Bears Ears, that were more controversial or had a bigger flash in the pan. But you know, for over a century, there's been a there's been a enormous tension uh, between what, what I would call natural resource extraction and industry and those wanting to uh, preserve the area. And, you know, that, and that tension comes from the fact that the area is doubly rich. It's rich in natural resources, right? Fur traders were, fur traders were here because there are a lot of fur-bearing animals. Um, they discovered iron in the area that led to the, um, the boom that created the iron range and supplied the steel that was needed for World War I, World War II, and building America. Uh, and then there's timber. Um, and, you know, half the boundary waters was... Um, cut at one time um, because of the logging industry. And at the same time, this is an extraordinarily beautiful place with, you know, un virtually unlimited possibilities for, for exploring, getting lost, having an adventure. Um, so there has been a longstanding tension that goes back to uh, 1909 when the Superior National Forest was founded um, on whether this area should be managed for recreation to keep it in, to retain that wilderness character or to um, extract the mineral timber for wealth from the area. And that brings us to the more recent controversy over copper, the one this story centers on. One thing that the Boundary Waters has in northeastern Minnesota has is that it is sitting on top of a lot of copper. Uh, this is known as the Duluth Complex. And They've known about this, these copper and nickel deposits since I think 1948. It was shortly after World War II that they discovered them. Um, so these, these aren't new discoveries. And in fact, in the 70s and 80s, there was a push and similarly a big kind of fight over whether or not to have 
copper nickel mines in the same place where the proposed polymet and proposed twin metal mines are today. Um, ultimately, they did not um, they did not dig for the copper. Um, obviously, the, and that is because the deposits are of such low grade quality that it just wasn't economically feasible to open a mine. You know, a mine is a huge operation. Um, you're moving tens of thousands of tons of rock per day to get at basically a scare, a pretty scarce amount of copper or nickel. So that controversy kind of died out for probably several decades. And then I think, you know, around 2005, 2006, Polymet, um, which was a junior mining company out of Toronto, uh, they came on the scene and said, well, we're going to buy this old LTV mine site, which is outside of Hoyt Lakes. It was an old taconite mine that had gone bust and closed down about uh, in 1999, I believe. And we're going to, uh, we're going to extract the copper nickel in the area. So that really set off the first, that was the first alarm bell. That was the first alarm bell, but the story of Polymet mine, it didn't end in the 90s. They're going to try to go after this copper nickel again. And sure enough, after Polymet announced its intentions to open this mine, uh, Twin, Twin Metals announced that they were going to step start drilling um, with the intention of opening a copper sulfide mine on the shores of Birch Lake, which is just a few miles outside of the boundary waters. So twin metals would would um, most likely create pollution that would flow directly into the boundary waters and polymet would um, create pollution that would flow into the Lake Superior watershed. And this sets up the current situation. Copper-nickel mines are proposed that would generate tons of copper and nickel, but also as much as 100 times more waste rock in the watersheds of the Boundary Waters and Lake Superior. Many people are in favor of mining, and many others oppose it. Let's spend a little time now getting into the science, the chemistry, biology, and hydrogeology of why people are worried. At the core of this issue is that waste rock, and what it contains even after the good stuff, the copper and the nickel, is removed. Yeah, you know, basically, uh, uh, the rock contains sulfide mineralogy, which contains the sulfurs, contains copper, nickel, cobalt, zinc. It also contains iron sulfides. It contains, in northeast Minnesota, it does contain chlorides, which is uh, another element that you don't want in the water. This is a longtime expert on the impacts of mining in northern Minnesota. My name is Bruce Johnson. Uh, I've worked for over 30 years in uh, water quality work in Minnesota. Basically, I researched, I was in the part of a group that researched uh, copper nickel mining in Minnesota. I've, I've worked for the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency, and I was doing water quality enforcement in, in industrial enforcement in the state and um, enforced permits on mining permits. And so I'm, I'm very uh, conversant in the copper-nickel mining. So we've got all this waste rock that has had the copper and nickel removed. But that waste, that rock, it doesn't just disappear. They've extracted the metal from the rock, and they throw the rest of it out into, the, into a pile called the tailings dam. And um, basically, 
the residuals will leach when the rainwater comes through, residual, residual chemicals will leach into the groundwater. We've studied waste rock that has low concentrations of sulfide minerals in it. And we found that basically any water that goes through the piles and comes out as a, a seepage or a discrete seepage is toxic, biologically toxic. And that's been well documented. Uh, the tailing itself will contain residues of sulfate, sulfate because when they pull out the copper and nickel, cobalt, zinc from the tailing, you're going to have sulfur as a result. So when water from rain or any other source comes into contact with these tailing piles, chemical reactions happen that leach some of the components out of the rock and mobilize it to flow wherever the water flows. In a place like northern Minnesota with a wet climate and lots of clean lakes and rivers, this means that pollution is incredibly unlikely just to stay put wherever the mining companies leave their waste. We'll talk a bit more about how it can move around in a little bit, but I want to spend a bit more time on what leaches out of these waste rocks and what effects it can have. What we found there is that sulfate in very low concentrations, if you have uh, wild rice in an area, sulfate in, in concentrations as low as 10 milligrams per liter can kill off wild rice. That's pretty stunning when you think about it. One milligram per liter is about one part per million. That means that if a wild rice plant was growing in a million molecules of water, and just 10 of those were sulfate, the wild rice plant would die. What we've seen in tailings that we've studied is we've seen sulfur, sulfate concentrations up to 1,500 to 2,000 milligrams per liter coming off the tailing. So the sulfate will interact and, and kill off wild rice. Wild rice, remember from what Frank said earlier, is the center of native culture up in the Lake Superior region. What Bruce is telling us is that it's incredibly sensitive to sulfur in its water. In fact, Minnesota regulates sulfur in its water to 10 milligrams per liter, which is a standard that's more stringent than anywhere else in the country because of the value of wild rice. But that's not all. Also, in very low amounts, it's been well documented that uh, mercury is sequestered in sediments of wetlands and, and lakes. And in very low concentrations, sulfur will remobilize the mercury into methyl mercury, which is a very highly dangerous material in uh, parts per trillion levels because it's bioaccumulative. Within the rock, itself, there's microfractures in some portions of this Duluth complex. And that, those microfractures contain sodium potassium chloride brines. When the rock is crushed up, these brines are released. At, at the AMAX mining facility, which I worked at, had chlorides coming off of the mine water, out of the mine and off of the waste rock at in the range of a thousand milligrams per liter. Um, it actually killed off a bog up there and they studied that from, from the leachate. Chlorides are very, very hard to get out of the water. About the only way you can do that knowingly is do reverse osmosis, which is a basically a filtration process 
which takes a lot of energy and you you only filter out the chlorides. And now you, instead of having a thousand parts per million, you have um, a very highly concentrated brine of chloride you have to get rid of. So you're, uh, on some of the stuff you're looking at, 40% of the water you filtered is now very concentrated in a very concentrated brine, which makes a problem to get rid of it. But the risks of mining, they don't stop even there. Yeah, the Boundary Waters is a very, very soft water regime. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of mineralogy in, in the water. And the organisms that have been living there for millennia uh, have adapted to very, very soft water conditions. Uh, mining is not a soft water issue. It's, it adds a number of different ions to the water, which have been shown to upset the organism structure within the water. Once you upset that organism, small organisms within the water, you then uh, impact the food chain up on those organisms, whether that be fish eating the organisms or whether that be fish eating something and eagles eating the fish. So it's important in the Clean Water Act to keep an area indigenous water quality similar to what it was back in the mid 1970s. And mining does not allow that to happen, especially sulfide mining. And none of that, sulfur, methyl mercury, chloride brines, or even adding otherwise innocuous ions, none of it is good for aquatic ecosystems, even beyond wild rice. Yeah, we haven't found any good way of doing things. There's a, uh, the DNR in Minnesota is, is advocating throwing all this stuff into a wetland, and hopefully the wetlands absorb the metals, but they're not looking at the chlorides, they're not looking at sulfates, neither is our pollution control agency. They're not looking at the toxicity of what comes off of these wetlands, because what you normally do with, with toxics is you look at bioassays, and basically you put uh, organisms, water fleas and, and uh, fathead minnows and, and algae into into a test pit and you, you in test, test tubes and you test the water. And if they're like this, it's okay. And they're like this, it's not so good. <laughs> and just a visual that helps explain what Bruce is saying here. At first, he has his hand out, palm down, with his fingers waggling like little insect legs. That's good. In those water samples, the insects can survive. But then he flips his hand over and his fingers are pointing up and they're not moving anymore. Not so good. And what we found is, is these bioassays show that the leachates, not only heavy metals, but everything else in there, are toxic to these organisms. But according to the mining companies, this is the end of the story. Sure, they say, dangerous stuff can come off the tailings, but in a modern mine, we can contain it all safely, so it'll never leak out and hurt the water and life of northern Minnesota. So the question is, do we need to worry? Should we take the mining companies at their word? To find out, I talked to Fred Campbell. Um, I uh, am a geologist. I received an undergraduate and graduate degree in geology uh, from McAllister and UMB, respectively. When I was still working on my master's degree, I worked at the Department of Natural Resources in the Hibbing office. And so I got involved in the regional copper nickel study, actually, and contributed 
to uh, some of the uh, maps and uh, resource estimates that were compiled. So then after that, I ended up working at the Minimax deposit. It's been called the Babbitt deposit. Uh, it's just north of Polymet. And uh, so I, I logged a lot of drill core there and worked underground a little bit. Uh, they had a, a vertical shaft and uh, horizontal drifts. And so I got a chance to see the geology underground as well as in drill core. So I got a good look at a very significant copper nickel deposit uh, in three dimensions. And so that helped me to get a good understanding of, of the whole picture combined with my work at the DNR. Then eventually I ended up doing mineral exploration for Burlington Northern uh, consulting firm and um, also uh, some other companies. But uh, that, that's my background in, uh, in mineral exploration. Um, after about seven years of doing that and moving around a lot, I ended up uh, working at the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency for 29 years. Uh, I worked as a hydrogeologist for, yeah, about 29 years anyway, and uh, worked on the Superfund program. And so I got a chance to see what happens after contamination occurs and how cleanup is implemented at sites with various kinds of contaminants. And what Fred told me is that the mining companies are assuming a few things when they make grand statements about the safety of their waste storage. The first assumption they make is that because the rock up there is that volcanic rock, and in this area, a particular variety called gabbro that has a name of the, the Duluth complex, they assume that volcanic rock, the Duluth complex, gabbro, is impermeable. Water and anything dangerous the water could carry, it can't get through it. And that assumption might be true on some small scales. For example, if you made a bowl out of this gabbro, it could probably hold water without leaking. And that's what the mining companies think their waste containment sites will be like, a bowl that holds all the dangerous stuff in. But on a larger scale, that rock is full of faults and fractures, which are basically like superhighways for water to move around underground. And one of the big problems with... With looking at the Duluth complex uh, specifically is that the mapping of faults and fractures is not that well developed. Because it's really hard to develop a full picture of subterranean fracturing. There are outcrops, but generally you don't see uh, fractures and faults very well in outcrop. Outcrops is the word that geologists use for exposures of bedrock at the surface. And if you remember back to episode one, I made an analogy that part of the difficulty of geology in a place like Minnesota or Wisconsin is that the generally low topographic relief of the landscape means there aren't very many good outcrops. So it's challenging to even infer what's between outcrops and develop a sense of the overall patterns of the bedrock. That means that trying to gain an idea of what fractures are doing within individual units of the bedrock, just by looking at whatever outcrops you're lucky enough to stumble across, that's even harder. But we do have some methods of trying to take a sneak peek underground. There are uh, lots of geophysical surveys, and so some of those faults and fractures are inferred from uh, those geophysical surveys. We talked a little bit about geophysical methods in episode three when I mentioned how scientists in the 1940s or so 
had used measurements of the magnetic strength and the gravitational pull of the Earth to figure out how much iron was in the rocks below ground and how dense they were. That's how we know the ancient mid-continent rift that helped form all this copper sulfide and is made up of iron-rich and dense volcanic rocks stretches all the way from where it crops out near Lake Superior into Oklahoma. Geophysicists also use tools like induced seismicity, where they make an explosion or an impact at the surface, and measure how the seismic waves that that impact sets off travel through the subsurface. Through that, they can pick up different layers in the rocks and even some big fractures and faults. Or they could use, in some cases, ground-penetrating radar to develop this picture of subsurface faulting and fracturing. Or if you drill out cores into the bedrock and see what you happen to hit in your cylinder of rock that you pull out, you could happen to have drilled through a fracture. These methods can all help, but it's still like trying to draw a perfect model of an intricate spider web in the dark, all the while knowing that the spider, in this metaphor that's the toxic mine waste runoff, that the spider might be anywhere, ready to bite. You know, I mentioned that uh, some of these uh, faults and fractures are not readily visible in outcrop, but you can see them in drill core. And one of the uh, ways you see them is you uh, find these highly altered serpentinized uh, zones. Uh, serpentine is the mineral that formed as an alteration product of the olivine and pyroxene minerals. And uh, that's because of fluids that were migrating along these ancient fractures and, and, uh, and carrying fluids that altered the, the rock and also uh, redistributed the metals. In fact, uh, the platinum group elements, a lot of them uh, appear to be related to some of these highly serpentinized zones. So that uh, you, you have these uh, structurally disturbed or displaced rocks that have been altered. And so those pathways are still open. And, you know, obviously, Many of them uh, are probably continuous to the surface. If you look at some aerial photos, you can see lineaments. I have a map myself that shows some of those lineaments. And uh, a lot of the creeks uh, in the area of the Duluth complex and the copper nickel sulfide deposit areas are following some of those lineaments. So uh, it's, it's not a stretch to imagine that uh, any waste materials or leachate could easily find itself moving into the, those pathways, those uh, lineaments and fracture zones and fault zones. What I understand, geologists are in the situation where we know enough to know that the fractures along which this toxic runoff could travel are there, but we don't know exactly how the pathways link together. But a mining company might say, hey, we don't have to worry about all that, because we could even put a liner under the tailing pond and help contain our waste. But here's Bruce Johnson again. If you put a liner under anything, all liners leak. So when you, at, at the Pollution Control Agency here in Minnesota, uh, if you have a sewage pond uh, and you put a liner on it, they allow that liner to leak 500 gallons per acre per day. Well, 
Now that begs the question of how toxic is the material that you're containing with this liner. And if they all leak, sometimes at Twin Metals, 500 gallons per acre per day is a, on 460 acres is about the amount of water they, they claim they're gonna pump out of the mine. So now what do we do with that when it leaks? That goes into fracture zones. You might've noticed that so far, we've only been talking about water moving underground. That's the groundwater. And that's important on its own, as you know if you've ever had a drink of water that came from a well. But I started off talking about the value of wild rice, and that sure doesn't grow underground. It grows on the surface, in shallow lakes and streams. You might be wondering, what does it matter to wild rice if there are toxic chemicals hanging out inside fractures down in the bedrock? That's one thing that I worked on a lot at uh, MPCA is groundwater surface water interaction. And we, we documented that at a number of Superfund sites. Uh, uh, in that case, we were documenting uh, solvents, usually trichloroethylene and chlorinated solvents that interacted between surface water and groundwater, and you had movement back and forth between those two. So it, it's a two-way street. The surface and the groundwater, they aren't two separate systems. They communicate with each other, flowing back and forth between aquifer and stream. So if something dangerous gets into the groundwater, it's a good bet it'll pop up in the surface waters sooner or later. And that could be devastating for wild rice, that is so clearly sensitive to the sulfur and other changes in water chemistry that this mine waste could bring. And this brings us back to Frank Bebo. Currently, his work is focused more on the pipelines that bring Canadian oil, often really corrosive stuff from the tar sands of Alberta, and ship it down to the Twin Cities or Superior Wisconsin, where it's processed and moved along into the global fossil fuel economy. But when we talked, we explored the many connections between his work focused on the Enbridge Line 3 pipeline and the copper sulfide mining proposed out to the east. I, I live primarily on Leech Lake Reservation. My dad was born up by Hibbing on the range, and that's in the 1855 ceded territory. It's also where the what we call the Hill of the Three Sisters, and that's where the subcontinental divide for the Northern Laurentian Divide, the Southern Laurentian Divide, and then the divide that goes through the Great Lakes to the Atlantic. They all meet right there at one point. And there, there's a meeting stone there because the people who lived here a long time ago already knew what it was. You didn't have to have the local scientists today, you know, figure out where the center of that, that uh, three watersheds met. So, so I understand those things, um, you know, for me and family history with mining and different things. The, the common aspect is the extraction and the desire to sell whatever you think you've gotten, you know, to make a profit. And usually those people aren't the same people that live where the extraction occurs. They don't have a vested interest in preserving the environment. And usually at some point, no matter what they say, they become ruthless to get whatever they want. And, and you know, we've seen that at Dapple with Standing Rock. I mean, it's just uh, amazing how this can be. So, yeah, it's sad in that regard. I, I think the metal mining industry in particular here, you know, is because of the long-term mining that's occurred, it seems more like a natural fit to a lot of people who 
are engaged in mining. You know, they don't see it the same as a pipeline coming through and necessarily the same kind of uh, gas emissions and, and other kinds of pollutants. But in actuality, it is the same exact culprit. And I think Bruce Johnson, he put these connections really well when he told me. I, I, I think well, the biggest thing on any of this mining is it can't be looked at as one small mine or one small issue in one small mine. Uh, these are huge chemical factories. And from Frank's perspective, it's not just mining. It's all the extraction taken together. And all of it threatens the wild rice or the monomen that is so central to the lives of his community. The way Frank sees it, it's not just him and his movement fighting on behalf of wild rice. Wild rice is fighting for them, too. His current legal action to halt the Line 3 pipeline is called Monoman versus the Minnesota DNR. That's the Department of Natural Resources. And it's a lawsuit brought in the tribal court of the White Earth Band of Ojibwe in Minnesota. It's predicated on the right of Monoman, of wild rice, to thrive, a right that has its basis in the mid-19th century treaties that ceded the land of northern Minnesota to the federal government. Those treaties specifically mention the right of the indigenous people to continue to hunt, fish, and crucially, specifically to gather wild rice. And almost everybody knows that we have a treaty right to it already because of all the other things that we're doing. And that's supreme law of the land stuff. That's right in the Constitution. And in a treaty, you know, that's pretty high to have the words wild rice in it. So it's those things I almost want to say, I don't want to say they're bulletproof, but compared to almost any other treaty, any other plant, any other entity, I don't know another match. So, you know, even if it said the right to um, catch fish and hunt deer or catch salmon, you would have to almost have that specific term. And I don't see those terms because they were broad. They were very broad, but wild rice was unique to us and the location was unique to us. So that's why we made sure that it was incorporated. And if this succeeds, it could be a major change in how environmental challenges proceed to extractive projects everywhere in a process led by indigenous people and kicked off by wild rice itself. I've been working with rights of Monoman because I believe in Monoman, and I just always have for other reasons and defended it and represented it um, with Winona LaDuke. And it goes back a long, long way, even back into the labeling um, litigation back in the late 80s. And... And so it's ironic in some ways that Monoman, you know, we were brought to the Great Lakes area and where we are in northern Minnesota because of prophecies about where the food grows on the water and that, you know, it would feed us, it would sustain us and all those things. It's still doing it. It's still protecting us. Now, it takes a translator or two, and I might be one of those translators. I don't know that I can say I'm a Monoman whisperer that Monoman, you know, and I have this you know, secret relationship that others don't have because I can tell you all the other Indians have a relationship with it too. And, and so it's, it's very interesting that way. But so, so as it turns out, protecting wild rice may be the best standard for mining problems as well as the pipeline, gas emissions, climate change, and everything else because it's a victim of all of those things. It's susceptible to all of those things. And almost everybody already knows that. That's Frank's new concept of a sustainable legal way to protect valuable resources like fresh water and wild rice. Of course, though, that's not the only avenue through which people are working to protect places like the Boundary Waters. 
the love of this landscape, it's made waves even into Washington, D.C. And that brings us back to the quote-unquote breaking news that the Biden administration is starting a process to put a moratorium on new mining in the watershed surrounding the Boundary Waters. Here's Pete Marshall from Friends of the Boundary Waters again. So the Biden administration announced towards the end of October that they were going to move to instate a 20-year moratorium on something like 225,000 acres of federal land surrounding the Boundary Waters. Now, this, this is really... Obviously, the, mine, the mining companies and the allies are portraying this as you know, a radical, thoughtless, purely driven by emotion move. Um, but what it really is, is, it's, it is it is a cautious move. So really, the moratorium is to pause and say, we got to think this through. Right. So it originally what was ordered was a two year study into whether or not there should be a moratorium. That study was begun in 2016. It was canceled under the Trump administration. All the findings, all the data that was compiled, what were completely redacted and hidden from the public. You can probably guess why, because it certainly didn't bode well for the mining company and, the, and a very industry friendly administration. So, so now the Biden administration is like, we're going to restart what was canceled. All right. So let's, let's look at the science. Let's look at what the evidence say. Let's study this instead of hastily, you know, building a mine and risking, you know, some of, some of the cleanest water in the country. And by the way, we're, you know, the country's going through a freshwater crisis. The world's going through a freshwater crisis. Um, So it's incredible. So having this abundant amount of fresh water in northeastern Minnesota, that is that is worth protecting. And if there is if there is danger from from these mines, then it's worth studying. And it's important to note, though, that many people in the north disagree. Frank talked about this a bit earlier. That for many in the Northwoods, it's the Iron Range or it's Copper Country, and mining is a natural fit up there, given the long history of extraction. They've seen generations of mining, and the Boundary Waters are still there. The economic benefits, they might say, outweigh the risks. But there are possible economic futures that are bright for the Northwoods, even without hard rock extraction. Tourism, as Pete told us with the Boundary Waters being the most visited federal wilderness in the country, that brings in money. But a non-extractive economy doesn't stop there. Frank told me about a possible economic future that's centered on wild rice. And this future, it's deeply rooted in the not-too-distant past. Oh, man, it was tremendous in the past. You know, I mean, it's just been routine for us in a way, you know, because we had a long, long, long relationship with it before, you know, colonization or whatever you want to call it from the French and the English and everybody in the United States. And, And so wild rice... Once it was discovered as a food, it was as valuable to trade, I'm sure, as furs and metal and kettles and knives. And you can probably go down the list. There was a, a direct value to it in the trade economy. Now, as you come forward, and I've looked through the National Archives and things like that and all this. And as you come forward, you see, and right in Cass Lake there on Leech Lake Reservation, there was a log cabin that I used to have a, a work for the legal department there. And there was this grain silo next door to the old uh, train station because they moved the train line um, 
probably about four or five blocks south of where it used to exist along Highway 2. And so there were some people out there doing a garden and they were painting the outside of this uh, this old elevator. And it was only probably 50 foot tall, you know, a short elevator. And I didn't know anything about it. And I was out there to talk to them about it. And they told me that it used to be a wild rice elevator. And that meant that the train stopped in Cass Lake and there was tons of wild rice waiting for them in that hopper, just like you would any other grain that these farmers take to the elevators by the railroad. And it wasn't the only elevator. These elevators were all over the place. So it was the only grain that was actually being transported and stored like that at that time. Imagine that an economy based on the sustainable harvest of Monoman, a landscape and society shared with thriving indigenous communities, all while keeping the waters clean. Thanks, Frank, and thanks to Pete, Bruce, and Fred as well for helping us understand the history and the science behind the opposition to copper-nickel mining in the Northwoods. Stick around for a few minutes before the credits, though, because there's a few ways that you can help out as a listener of Under Our Feet. First, check out honorearth.org. There's a ton of information there, and under the Action tab, links to donate, volunteer, and take action yourself. And for the next two months, I'll be donating half of any support I receive on Patreon to honor the earth, to help Frank and his colleagues work to protect wild rice. So I'd ask you to consider becoming a supporter of Under Our Feet on Patreon to support both this indigenous-led initiative to sustain their vital resources and to support this podcast where I'll continue to bring you stories of geology and why geology matters to us every day. Because the more you know about earth and its stories, the more you can understand how you fit into them. And with that knowledge comes connection and care for the world around you. That's a powerful thing. There's a link at uofpod.org. Also, stay tuned next week for a longer version of my conversation with Frank. We covered so much ground in a fantastic conversation, I couldn't get it all in this episode. In this less edited conversation, we'll talk more about the legal standing behind his Rights of Monoman case, we'll talk about Line 3 and the dangers it poses, and the destruction that it's already created even before oil has started flowing. And we'll talk more about the history and importance of wild rice. I think it's all important to hear, so tune in and we'll get more details next week. Then after that, we'll go back to our normal schedule of resuming our march through geologic time in Wisconsin with some great stories about caves and lead mining in the southwest part of the state. Thanks for listening. I really enjoyed putting together this episode, and I hope you enjoyed following along. A reminder to reach out anytime with questions, comments, concerns, or just to say hi. There's contact info at uofpod.org. The music you're hearing right now and hear every time on Under Our Feet is the song Arizona Moon by the Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to the American Geophysical Union for helping get this thing off the ground, and thanks to all of my wonderful supporters on Patreon. And, of course, thanks to Katie Demetz and Jeremy Randolph Flagg.